We're going to be worshiping a bit more a bit later on, and we're focusing on communion together uh, this morning. As you will know, if you've been uh, with us in the past weeks or since the beginning of the year, we started a series called The Heart of Jesus, and uh, we're coming nearly to the end of that series, uh, so that when Edward's back from his sabbatical, he'll be able to regale you with all the things that he's been uh, learning I think he's been doing a lot of studies on the wrath of God, so wouldn't that be great to follow the heart of Jesus with? Because we wanted to know Jesus better. That was that desire of us as a fellowship at the beginning of the year to go deeper in our relationship and closer in our walk with him. And we took as our sort of base camp text Jesus' words when he, for the only time in the Gospels, he describes his own heart. Come to me all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. C.H. Spurgeon was an amazing uh, preacher of the 19th century, founded, uh, uh, planted churches. Uh, He had his sermons printed in the uh, newspapers week by week. An incredible guy, and uh, Edward and I both went to a college named after him. It's called Spurgeon's College in South London. Well, Spurgeon tells a story of a woman who had come up to him after a service once, and she claimed that she had attained sinless perfection. I know, you're very impressed by that. And that she had not sinned for years. He recalls the moment when someone, and I have a sneaky suspicion it may be Spurgeon himself, and he was quite a heavy man, stood on her toe. And apparently, he says, her sinless perfection departed from her like the morning dew. I'm not sure many of us this morning, if we, we went around asking one another, would claim that we had attained sinless perfection. And if we do, we've suddenly blown it because we've become quite proud of it. And you know, None of us would say that we are perfect. We know what we're like. And if we're honest, I think some of us would be prone to think at times that we are a bit of a disappointment to God. A few years ago, um, one of my dear friends now, I'd never met him before, but he came on an Alpha course, and he got saved, gloriously saved, and then baptized, and then disappointed, because he thought that from his baptism and conversion, he would live a sinless life. And then he thought he was a disappointment to God. And he doesn't think that anymore because he has come to understand God's amazing love and grace. But I think there are still many of us who think deep down we're a bit of a disappointment to God. It is one thing to believe that God has put away and forgiven all our old failures and sins that occurred before we got born again. That's a wonder of his grace and his mercy That barrier that separated us from him was smashed by his death on the cross. And we were given this new life. 
But they were sins committed before we came to know Jesus. When we were still in the dark, when we had not become new creations, before we were freshly filled with the Holy Spirit, empowered to walk in the light and honor the Lord with our lives. It is another thing to believe that God continues just as freely to put away and forgive all our present failures as we come to him, those that have occurred since our new birth. As believers, we know that God loves us. We really do believe that, and he's proven it to us on the cross. But if we examine closely our walk with God, how we relate to him, it reveals sometimes that actual theology that we really believe that that love is slightly tinged with disappointment. Maybe I'm just speaking to myself. We imagine sometimes the Lord looking down on us with a sigh. (sighs) And we may picture him wondering, how are they still falling short after all I've done for them? As the old Puritans would say, that we are now sinning against the light. That's how they used to put it. We know the truth, and our hearts have been fundamentally transformed, but if we're honest, we know we still fall and fail. And sometimes the shoulders of our souls droop with even self-disappointment. And once again, this is our Cells projecting onto God our own thoughts of what he is like. We have not yet fully grasped his heart for us. And we've journeyed through this series, The Heart of Jesus, discovering what God says. What does the Bible say about his heart? And that's why Paul writes in Romans and chapter 5, verses 6 to 11, we're going to read these words together. It's just such good news. And look out for the words, how much more? Because depending on how you read this passage, certain words stick out for you. But I want you to look out for how much more? You see, Paul writes, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, Shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now, it is a truth that the Christian conscience is a sensitized conscience. We are more aware of sin. I didn't think I was a sinner till I knew Jesus. 
I was captivated by his love. He died for me on the cross. And when I got to know him, I realized how much of a sinner I was and so grateful for his amazing grace. The Apostle Paul knows this. He writes in 1 Timothy 1 verse 5, Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Apostle Paul. Probably the greatest missionary, the greatest theologian the world has ever known, advocate for Jesus. And notice that he doesn't say, Jesus saved me because I was the worst sinner. That he persecuted the church, that he sought to have Christians arrested and killed. He says that I am, present tense whom I am the worst. But Paul also knows the freedom that there is in Christ, that there is no condemnation, Romans 8 verse 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I think what Paul is getting at in those passages is that now he compares himself with Jesus. There was a time when he compared himself with other people, but now he compares himself with Jesus. And yes, we do. If we know Jesus, we feel deeply the ugliness of sin in our lives. Yes, we feel that our failures are a disappointment. But while we were still ungodly sinners, enemies, Jesus died for us. He didn't die for us once we'd become strong and godly in faith. He didn't die for us once we'd started to overcome our sinful nature. He didn't reconcile us to himself once we had become his friends. He didn't meet us halfway. He came all the way. He didn't hold anything back. Cautiously assessing our worth. That's not his heart. He took the initiative in terms of grace and grace alone, in defiance of what we might think we deserved. While we were still his enemies, the King of Heaven left his throne in heaven. While we were still his enemies, he put himself in the murderous hands of his enemies. When we couldn't care less about him, when I couldn't care less about him, he died for me. He cared for me. And only when the Holy Spirit came flooding into my life and into our hearts did the realization of all that Jesus did for us sweep over us and captivate us so that we use these songs that we come and sing every Sunday morning to express how much we love him. He walked through my death and he didn't simply just, he didn't just die. He was condemned, betrayed, abandoned, tortured, crucified. He simply didn't leave heaven for me. He endured hell for me. That I might not. 
This is his heart for you and me. Christ died to confound our intuitive assumptions that the divine love that he has has an expiration date. You know how you check the stuff in the cupboard. And you think, is it out of date? Is God's love ever out of date? No. It doesn't have an expiration date. It doesn't have a best before date. Just at the right time, he died for us. He died to prove God's love, as Jonathan Edwards, a great revivalist, puts it. It is an ocean without shore or floor. God's love is as boundless as God's God himself. And then Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 3 from verse 14 onwards this wonderful prayer. For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Isn't that wonderful? For God to cease to love his own that he bought with his blood, he would have to cease to be God. You are not a disappointment to God. I am not a disappointment to God. He doesn't just love us. He is love. This is the greatest news in the history of the world. And Paul wants us to know how much more In our reading from Romans 5. If God in his grace and his love did that for us then, how much more will he do for us now? Now we are his own. It's so important for Paul that he repeats it twice. How much more? Paul's deepest burden as he writes to the Romans there is to help them to understand that they are securing God. That they are not condemned. It's the enemy that condemns. It's the one who comes to stand against us, who whispers in our ear and says, we are not good enough for God. Call yourself a Christian. You've let that happen again. How can you face God? They're all the lies of the enemy. Paul's deepest concern is our present security. Jesus didn't save us to condemn us. He came to set us free from condemnation. He went through all that pain and suffering to save us. He will not let us go now. I was trying to think of a way of how to to explain this. I was struggling. If God has done the difficult thing, 
When we were enemies, when we were powerless, when we were sinners, if he did the difficult thing, now that we are his children and his friends, how much more will he do now? Imagine you're going to see a friend on the other side of, I don't know, let's say Mickleton. You're, you're going to walk to Mickleton. It's freezing cold. It's snowing outside. But you want to go there. So you trudge through the snow. You go through the sleet and the rain. It's freezing cold. You walk the miles you have to to get there. And then just when you get to the gate of your friend's path, the sun comes out. It starts to warm up and you decide, oh, I don't think I'll bother anymore. I know that's a, pu- you know, a flimsy illustration, but what I want you to grasp is that God has done all that for you. When you were not his friend, when you were an enemy of his, he went to the cross for you. He is not going to abandon us now. He's not going to condemn us now. He's going to see it through to the end. And he is with us and for us. That's the thrust of Paul's argument. God has done the difficult thing. How much more will he keep us now? Coming to Jesus is not just a fresh start. Three strikes and you're out. Coming to Jesus is salvation. As Dane Ortland puts it in his book, it's the invincibilizing I don't know if that was a word, but it's the invincibilizing of our future. I like it, though. Salvation is past, present, future. Jesus has saved us. He is saving us. He will save us. We were enemies of God, and he came to save us. How much more will he care for us now we're his friends? Indeed, his children, sons and daughters, adopted, chosen, set free. Heard of an interview, a mother who had uh, 13 children. Now, wow. She was interviewed. Do you think all your children deserve full, impartial love? Yes, she replied. Trying to couch her out, the interviewer asked her, which one of your children do you love the most? The mother said, that's easy. The one who is sick until they are well. The one who is away until they are home. The one who is lost until they are found. Yes, I love them all. God loved us when we hated him. Or if we didn't hate him, we didn't care about him. He will not remain distant. Now we aim to please him, even if we falter. We haven't attain sinless perfection. We do fail from time to time. But his love has never changed. He loved us then, he loves us now. His love will endure forever. And maybe our agony over sin is a good thing because it's the fruit of our adoption. Before I knew Jesus, I wasn't even bothered. Like our alpha man who got disappointed. The fact that he was so troubled revealed to me that he loved Jesus. 
and he didn't like to let him down. What do we do if we fall short? What we do is we run to him immediately. The devil will whisper, hide. He's done that from the very beginning. If we fail or falter, we run to him immediately. And we call on his name because he loves us. And we do a thorough job of saying sorry to God. Yes, we do. And we re-hate that sin all over again. And we consecrate ourselves afresh to the Holy Spirit and his ways. And we ask for help. And if it's helpful, we make ourselves accountable to somebody else. But we reject the devil's whisper that God's tender heart for us has grown a little colder. That he is somehow disillusioned with us. He had no illusions about us in the first place. He is not flustered or disappointed. He knows us and still loves us. If we are in Christ... And only a soul in Christ is troubled by offending him or letting him down. Those in Christ are held in the tender heart of Jesus. And you know, one day we will sin no more. There will be a day, sinless perfection. At the moment, the power of sin has been broken, the penalty of sin has been broken, and one day the very presence of sin will go. For we will be like him. But we are not loved any less now than we ever were. When Jesus died on the cross for you, his love has not changed from that moment for you. We are secure in him. Jesus says, come to me. And so we're going to come this morning Not because we're good enough. Not because we've attained sinless perfection because we haven't. We come because we're invited to come by Jesus and share this very simple meal of bread and a cup, remembering what Jesus did on the night that he was betrayed, before his torture and crucifixion. And we remember Jesus. We come and leave those things at the cross that we need to leave. And we come and express our thanksgiving for all that he's done for us. How much more? Amen. Amen. We're going to worship together. I'm going to ask the band to come back.